TV Drama Podcast. I'm Scott, and joining me once again, the driving force to my diving horse, it's Brian. Hey, Brian. Hey, Scott. How you doing? I'm doing pretty well. I'm feeling better than I did last week, and hopefully I'll feel even better next week. And you know what makes me feel really good? Talking about Perry Mason? Damn straight, because we are back to discuss Chapter 10 of Perry Mason. But before we step into the episode... You know, there was something uh, I said last week. I, it it might have been an error. I'm, I'm feeling that it was. I don't know if it was just a throwaway line I did at the end of the podcast or if I had referenced it earlier as well. Um, I didn't go back to listen to it because, you know, how many times can I listen to my own voice? La, la, la. Anyway, I made a, a lot, actually. I made a joke towards the end of the podcast that referenced um, Detective Holcomb and that coin that I thought he was flipping or something along those lines because I was referencing him being the silhouetted man that we see at the start of the premiere, you know, after that gambling barge had been set on fire. Then when the Perry Mason uh, opening title comes up and he's the, the, the man is like uh, silhouetted against the letter a and whatever. Now watching the episode, we're going to talk about this evening and they make a very, they make a point of talking about a coin that McCutcheon had or was known for having, like a lucky coin. Um, like, like Harvey Dent had a lucky coin. Characters always have lucky coins in, in back in the thirties. It's very strange. So it had me thinking, wait a minute, maybe that wasn't Holcomb after all. So I will tell you, I actually went back and put on the episode and went right to that moment and I couldn't tell who it was. So I'm thinking, okay. I don't think it's Holcomb after all. Maybe this is McCutcheon standing at the pier. See, I'm just not sure. So I, I, I'm just, I think I'm more sure that it's not Holcomb than anything else, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And it very well may be McCutcheon, but I'm curious. There's also this shadowy goon figure that starts to emerge more in this episode. Um, and, and I wonder if that person could be the person that had that coin and maybe later in the the episode where we see an evidence drop, maybe that coin gets put in the, the wallet then. So, I, I mean, I didn't watch it that carefully, so I don't know for sure. And if anybody out there thinks they know for sure or has an 8,000 inch TV that, you know, they can correct us with, but I, I think probably it's most likely McCutcheon after the attention paid to the coin. But, you know, I wouldn't, discount that it could be the goon the shadowy goon figure we see this episode i like the shadowy goon idea because that, that that hadn't occurred to me um but you're right especially since that is employed in this episode and we're definitely going to be talking about that once we get to it um okay in any case at least i i'm pretty sure i was wrong that it's not holcomb so i i, I do feel well, vindicated is not the right word. I feel I'm doing the right thing by pointing out that I made a mistake because it does happen, you know, and that way if I do it, then people can't point it out for me. Anyway, one other thing I wanted to mention, <laughs> and I shouldn't, 
<laughs> but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, I think I just wanted to clarify because I do believe I talked about it on the previous podcast as well. And hopefully this will be the last time I mention it. Um, you can hold my feet to the fire on this one, perhaps, um, unless they, until the show does something differently. I think the one thing, my one little minor critique at, of any for the episode last week was the fact that they didn't use any sort of music that referenced that, that truly was a riff and referenced the original Perry Mason theme that they had this really super jazzy, you know, mournful, whatever you want to call it music at the end, which I felt, uh, no, don't, that's not the way to go because we've already been hearing that throughout the episode anyway, much like the one we watched this week as well. And I went back just to make sure I wasn't, I didn't imagine this. And then, you know what? In the final episode, and we talked about it. I recall clearly that we talked about it. At the end of the final episode of season one, they had a dynamite, you know, new version of the theme, of the old Perry Mason theme. Yeah, it, it, it had its, well, first of all, the theme has a jazz influence on it to begin with, but they jazzed it up and got it all jazzy and souped up. And it was rhythmic as all get out. It was kind of freaking cool. And I keep thinking, why are they not using that to end each episode instead of, you know, music, which is fine, but fairly forgettable in my opinion. I don't, I don't need you to do riffs on that music in any point during the actual episode. What they're doing is fine, even though I do personally think there are times in the episode that I think the music is a little bit intrusive. I would I would prefer a few more quiet moments as, as opposed to the way they use music at times. But I say that about a lot of TV shows. I just I don't usually say it out loud. I say it inside my head. Uh, <laughs> but I just feel once again, you know, like I said last week, and like I said, that's why I'm saying it. This is the last time. You're doing Perry Mason and you've already, you've actually already composed a really cool riffing and ripping version of the iconic theme. Why not use it every episode? Please do not even try to tell me it's due to additional licensing costs because it incorporates some of the original theme. Cause you are clearly spending a lot of money on this series already. And I don't think that's any more expensive than the cast or the period look or clothing or everything else you got going. That's all. Like I said, it's the nitpickiest of nitpicks. It doesn't. It shouldn't. It doesn't impact anyone else's enjoyment of the show. It doesn't even impact my enjoyment of the show because I'm talking about the credits. The show is already over. It just kind of bugs me that they're not using it because it was so. It was one. It made me smile so much. You know, a few years ago. Please bring it back, dear whoever is behind this. Because I didn't think to IMDb who it is. Please bring it back. Anyway, okay. <laughs> Well, I will say, let's put a pin in that and see when it see and when and if it emerges, and revisit that later this right. season. Yeah, I wonder if they'll just end the the final episode with it again and be like, "Oh, really? You're gonna make us wait? I mean, well, make Scott wait because no one else cares." All right, I got it off my chest. So let us get to chapter ten. I mean, there might be a few announcements about future podcasts later on, but you right now tune in, tune out, whatever. We are up to talking about chapter ten, and I was just actually just talking to Brian a little bit just before we started recording that I felt that this, that the first episode we watched last week, it was really more about character introductions from beginning to end with a smidge of plotting here and there. And by character introductions, and I really mean for the most part, character reintroductions, like reintroducing where they are at this point in their lives and this point in the story and so on. 
this episode, I felt in many ways, was kind of the opposite. Because this was more about plot progression and story groundwork that's laid throughout the episodes with a few character, actual, genuine character introductions that are sprinkled into this episode. So let's just go right to, I'm going to put it all together in one, one big melange, the entire opening sequence. You know, from the murder scene to the apprehension of the suspects, and you hear Hamilton Berger is speaking before a crowd, and then, oh, speaking of introductions, this is when we get an, uh, a character introduction. We are introduced to his deputy DA, who's going to be handling the case, and, and we're going to get to him in a second. But before we get to that, uh, you know, much like when we were talking about the previous episode, Brian, um, and I thought one of the really key moments or scenes in that episode was the conversation between Perry Mason and Hamilton Berger. Now, I'm not saying what I'm about to say is the key moment of this episode. That I think that's a bit of that would be a bit hyperbolic. Um, but I thought it was very telling and very and, and kind of fun in, in my mind, at least. There's something that Hamilton Berger says. He, he lays down like three lines here. When he says, he basically says, justice will be done. Police have performed their job with honor. And then he makes reference to their, their office will try the case with the utmost integrity. And all I could think was, I think it is, it's almost obvious, if nothing else, that everything he just said will be proven to be false. <laughs> I, yes. I think we, we already know his opinion about justice. So we know that right going into it. And plus, we, we, we know what kind of show this is. <laughs> but, and, 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 and police with honor, office of integrity, come on. I mean, I, I just, I really, I kind of, I kind of smirked at that because I just like, oh, that's funny. He's, you know, it's lie, lie, lie. Oh, there you go. And, 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 we, and, and we like Hamilton, but, uh, he's a liar. And, and those, the, all those are proven lies in the episode. Um, we get the police allowing evidence to be tampered with, uh, we get Milligan releasing the forensic report to the press so that they can get bushwhacked at the uh, at the bail hearing. And so there's um, so, I mean, immediately the things he says are proven that he's a cynic the way that, that he disclosed to Perry in the in the conversation we talked about last time. Absolutely. The, 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 the difference between the two of them in a weird way is he. <laughs> And, and, and that's probably what makes him a more, uh, although Perry is who we root for, Hamilton, at least the way we've seen him so far, he's technically a more fun character than Perry Mason. He embraces the cynicism and uses it to his advantage, where Perry is just kind of tends to be more depressed by it <laughs> and, and, and upset by it. You met, since we mentioned Milligan, um, he, like I said, character introduction, before I say anything, did you recognize the actor? Do you recognize the guy playing Thomas Milligan? I, I thought he looked familiar, but I didn't do any research. All right, so that's Mark O'Brien. Um, he's up like any other actor. He's done a number of things. But the things that folks like you and I and, and probably at least uh, a handful or, or more of our listeners would recognize him from. Um, first of all, he appeared in many episodes of Halt and Catch Fire. So for all the Halt and Catch Fire fans, that's probably the first thing they, they recognize him from. But what you might also recognize him from, I'm going to say he played the original Cocaine Bear, man, because he was Randall Tear in the last two episodes of season two of Hannibal. 
the guy where the guy who had the that 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 animat that weird cybernetic animatronic bear, you know, creature where he, where he shredded people, whatever. That's him. No kidding. <laughs> so, so maybe 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 if it ran on propane, maybe it was more like a propane bear. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and I I like that. Now, again, I love when you get introduced to a character and you can you can take that temperature like okay i i i i get what this guy's going to be and maybe it'll be interesting if over the course of uh a number of episodes maybe we get proven wrong maybe there's more shadings to them or not it works either way i don't if it turns out there's more to them that's great if it turns out okay you were able to give me that quicker character sketch in like 30 seconds i'm good with that too cuz we'll talk about how he's introduced and 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 the the vibe we get from him compared to say the Hope Davis character later on in the episode. But I noticed when he, when he's speaking and he's talking about obviously the case and, and the suspects and right off the, he goes right to calling them savages and he's right. He's, he's right, right there. He's stirring up the hate and it just, it's, it's a reminder because we see that happening nowadays, but they were even more bold about it back then because People were actually what comes around goes around. People seem to be wearing it on their sleeves nowadays, and they certainly were doing that in the 1930s. Yeah, and it, what you see really um, is that that he's trying to make sure that all the worst sentiments are dredged up so that these guys never get a fair trial. Um, he's he's trying to stack the deck so that public sentiment is so negative and terrible. That, it, that it's next impossible for them to get a fair trial. And, and Perry sort of talks about that a little bit in the, in the bail hearing, but this is sort of the start of it. And the idea that, you know, they're dangerous to our community. They're savages um, that basically they're the other so that, that we should, you know, convict them, kill them and get them out of our community. Right. That was exact. I, I, I kid you not. That is exactly the, t- the phrase I was about to go to. So uh, kudos for for it, for hitting that home run before I was able to get on base there. Um, the other. It's all. It's always about vilifying the other, and that is what we're seeing happening here. So um, let's and and obviously, as you put it, um, he's he's poisoning the well here as far as public sentiment and potential jurors and so on. And the things that we'll see, we, we talk, uh, you actually have already referenced that we'll talk about a, a, a little bit later, is just another form of doing that as well. But before we get there, as we, are, as we march through the episode, we get to the office. And actually, we're going to start in the elevator. Because I, I, feel, I feel I need to point this out. Because I, I want to give the uh, writer or writers, and I didn't look up their names, which I used to do for when we covered episodes of television. And I seem to have not do that as often. I want to give them credit. Um, so good job, whoever you are. Uh, go look it up. Anyway, <laughs> I loved Perry and Della talking about the picture frame that he smashed in the previous episode. And I know that my, some of you might be going, who cares? Why is that a big deal? I'll tell you why it's a big deal. Think about everyone who's listening. You've watched hundreds some of you maybe have watched probably more likely thousands of episodes of television, not to mention probably hundreds of movies. How many times have you seen a character punch and break either a mirror or a picture or picture frame? How often is it ever referenced later on, either in that episode or a subsequent episode or, or a later scene? 
I'll tell you how many times. Almost never. Almost never. The fact that it's even addressed, I thought, that's really cool. Because it, you know why? Because even though this is a very, it's a 1930s stylized up the yin yang kind of a show, you know, shades of your Chandler and your Hammett or pretensions of that at least, or even Earl Stanley Gardner himself, whatever, and that kind of a thing. They did something which I felt if this was real life, that would have been brought up in a conversation. Like, you know, we, we'd have been like, dude, why did you hit that picture? Or, oh, I tell, I totally get why you get, you know, you don't, you know, that really bothers you. And that picture was almost, and I think this is a show where we're seeing things which I like to call um, totems, you know, things that seem to have some sort of power, not just in terms of plot, but for characters and what they represent. And clearly we all knew that that picture, that, that headline, that reminder of the case that they had won and what really happened over the course of time after, you know, quote unquote, winning the case or getting the case declared mistrial, which I guess is winning the case, whatever, you know what I mean? I think that was really so important. And I, I just, I, and, and it's even, and they even, in fact, every time you reference that case, it's almost like your first image you think of other than Dodson herself is that framed picture of the headline. I just, I just thought that was a nice touch. Um, I love Della bringing it up. I, I just, mm, I, and, and the fact that she already got married to get a new friend. <laughs> I'm wondering if maybe, maybe they'll put it in a different part of the office. <laughs> Well, I think it goes to a little something you said last week, and that is sort of Della. It reminded me Della's the adult. She's sort of the mother figure while he's processing all this stuff or the the responsible older sister, what have you. And you can imagine, you know, if you'd thrown a temper tantrum and done something like that, you could imagine like your mother or your older sibling being like, "Okay, now you punch the punch the picture. Okay, is that out of your system? Are you done? You know, you know, like making a point out of it without being overbearing. Right. But just sort of, and, and I really like that the chemistry that we see developing the way that Della stepped up to now be, you know, an equal and probably in some ways maybe will surpass Perry this season um, in, in some skills. And it makes, makes me think back to the first thing you talked about and I'm not, asking the question i'm just posing this to to say i it makes me curious if we'll see a scene where it's perry and della and there's burger and and his assistant um is it milken milliken milligan milligan if we'll see all four of them in the courtroom you know um lead lead attorney assistant attorney perry and and della uh, all against each other i think that could be really exciting I could definitely anticipate something like that potentially happening. Here's an interesting thing just to point out before I move uh, move on in, in the episode, since you mentioned uh, Hamilton again. And, and I know I, I, I seem to reference Hamilton a bunch of times, more because he's he's been one of the more fun characters, which is interesting because anyone who watched, like, say, the TV show for years or, or in reruns when they were kids, whatever, um, no one was really all that much fun on the show, quite frankly. But the thing to always remember, and we can, sometimes it kind of slips by until you just until maybe an episode like this. At at some point in time, they get along. They absolutely are are friends or friendly or friends, but they're adversaries. Perry Mason and Hamilton Berger will always be in opposition to each other. 
you know, even if Hamilton plays a part in the, almost the origin of Perry and what gets him to, to, you know, take on the law as we saw in season one, whatever. But at, again, I, I, I hate to reiterate the phrase I just said, but at the end of the day, they are adversaries, which is why I thought, again, I'll go back to that conversation in the previous episode, why I thought that little disagreement between the two of them was so important, because I felt to me, that's the reminder. These guys, they might, they might like each other, and they probably, and quite frankly, they should like each other. In my recollection, books and TV show, whatever, Perry Mason and Heltenberger did like each other, but they were always, they were almost always opposed to each other. Cause, you know, one, one's a defense attorney, one, one's the DA. I mean, they're, they're, right. they're natural opponents. We just, we shouldn't, I, I think they've done such a nice job with him and especially with his relationship with Dell that we see, um, and how it's done in this episode, it's so much, again, it's so much fun. But it's like, oh, I, I love the fact that because they could set, set up Hamilton Berger in so many other ways. They could have made so many other decisions of how to handle his character. They could have made him a real stick in the mud. They could have made him, you know, more, almost more villainous, like the Steven Root character was in, in season, in season one. I love that they didn't go that direction. I, I think it was a very smart choice. Um, no. no, I like that they make him sort of a, uh, pragmatist and not we don't see two idealists um, going against each other one that totally believes in law and order in the american way and the other that believes you know in in you know constitutional protections for people it's kind of interesting that that it's you know the idealist is sort of perry and because of that he's becoming jaded and hamilton's very pragmatic right 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 so we we get into the scene where uh, Perry and Della are visited by the uh, other, f- the family of uh, the two suspects who have been arrested for the murder of McCutcheon, and uh, we 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 determine it's it's their mo- it's the mother and the wife of of one of them, the the older brother, I guess. And it took me a few minutes to remember where I knew her from. Um, the woman playing the mother, um, that actress's name is Onahe Rodriguez. Um, she's been in a lot of things over the years, but I think the thing that I remembered her from, because she, that's one of the shows she appeared several times in the shield. She, she was from the shield. I, I remember, Cause I remember getting so frustrated with her in the shield. It's like, oh, I know you're going to get killed son, at some point in time. Yeah. Spoiler. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so uh, obviously this, now this scene plays out exactly how you think it's going to play out. We already we, we we don't have to have even seen the ad from the last week's episode or anything else to know. Okay, this is them. They're going to plead the case for Perry to take the case, and he's going to say no. And you know, Doug's going to try to probably be the more mature one to explain why because they've switched to civil from criminal and blah blah blah. But it's it's the reluctant hero syndrome where at this point in time he he doesn't see himself being able to do it, and it just it it took me back to. Um, uh, what was talked about in the previous podcast that, and he actually, I think I'm even going to paraphrase him a little bit here. He doesn't see himself as the man for the job. He, at this point, he doesn't believe he truly saved Emily Dodson. He only delayed her eventual death. So the self doubt and the depression that we've seen him going through clearly feelings of inadequacy that led him to choose civil over, over criminal law, you know, it's all on display here, but you know, but but let's be clear: the the disdain that we saw of his meeting 
earlier, I, I skipped over it. I know I did, but I don't mind that I did. Uh, his disdain of his meeting with the, um, Sean Astin's character, the, the supermarket sleazeball, you know, also clearly indicates he wants to do something better. So, so it's, so at this point, it's kind of, it's an interesting, um, situation for the character of how it's like he doesn't believe in himself, but he desperately wants to. And it's just, and then now we're just waiting to see what is going to push him to make the decision that we all know he's going to, because it's the Perry Mason TV series. Of course, he's going to take the case. He, he may not believe in himself, but he doesn't feel as dirty. He, I mean, the stuff Sonny is talking about now is like, hey, why don't you draft contracts in my favor so we can screw people? And it's like, it just feels, you know, that that's not why, why Perry Mason wants to practice law. Yeah. It, it becomes one of the, one with the stuff with the supermarket fella, one, it's once he went down that path with what with what he ended up having to do to his competitor in the previous episode and how he had to follow, you know, essentially follow instructions to really put the screws to the guy and really, you know, or didn't screw over the guy until he, he would be like out of business and, you know, and lost. By the way, the newspaper that he's looking at later, and I know it leads to that later scene, and, and it's a slightly different thing with the later scene, but is the going out of business, is that... The guy that he put out of put out of work. It, That's it, how I took it. Yes, that, that, that was my was, assumption as well. Okay. Yeah, that he was looking at it and and seeing that that they were having a yeah. you know final sale to go out of business. That's what I thought. My only confusion for a moment there was the the later scene between which we'll talk about shortly between Perry Della and um, Sonny and and because I think that happens shortly thereafter. And I thought, oh, did I? Did I, did, did I make too much of that scene? I was like, no, it has to be the guy you put out. Okay. So, when I get to... <laughs> I love this little moment. It's such an interesting scene. It's Drake meeting with Strickland. First of all, the idea, whoever can... Again, I always like to give the writers kudos. You know, I already gave him kudos for the mention of the picture frame. Here's number two kudo. I love setting up a table, with, even with the, the checkered tablecloth and everything, in the alleyway behind a restaurant. <laughs> I mean, it, it, talk about, talk about the worst scene in the place. You know, you're basically sitting pretty much by the dumpsters and the garbage, but that's where, you know, and that's where Drake is going to meet him with, with the, with the, with the photos from his recon work, whatever. Um, I, I just love, I mean, it, it's a great gag. I just, I just thought it was, it was something just so brilliant about doing it that way. It didn't have to be that way. They clearly could, but I think they just made that decision. Now, I don't, I won't go as far as to assume, oh, because he was a person of color, maybe he could have walked into that restaurant. I don't, I don't know if that would have mattered with that specific restaurant. I, I can't say, but I don't, I also don't think Strickland would have had himself, had his table set up just for that purpose. So it's one of those things. I started wondering why would he? Why would a table be set up out here from you know out there? What's the purpose of that? What's the? And I keep thinking there's a story here. I don't know what it is. I bet the writers do. I bet it's just they have like a backstory for Strickland in their mind that we're not being exposed to. And I'm just I'm trying to connect the dots, trying to imagine why would you be? Why would you be doing that? It's such a strange idea. Then again, maybe that's a table where the help or people who eat who, who work in the restaurant eat because maybe they're not allowed to be seen eating around the customers and they can't eat in the kitchen. So that might be the possibility. That's where they take their lunch hour or something. I, I don't know. No, but the detail, the de the detail in it that, that's telling and what they do in a lot of the 
quick storytelling in this show is that that you know that's where Drake was told to meet him. And there's already a table there. You get the sense Strickland has, does business here some, from time to time, that, that this is not his first trip there, uh, that when he calls a meeting, there's probably this setup there. Because let's face it, although Paul may not be you know, welcomed in the restaurant, Strickland doesn't feel as comfortable with the hoity-toity as he does in the back alley either. Right. And also, to go along with what you just said, there's probably any number of people that Strickland does meet with who aren't the most reputable type that he would yes. that would be entering a restaurant like that. So more like a back alley kind of a meeting. That makes perfect sense. I just, you know what? We just created the backstory for it. There you go. There I you just go. love the detail. It just it made it, to me. It just made it a more interesting um, staging of a scene like that, where you know it's the kind of thing that we expected to be in the restaurant. Instead, it's outside. But he's eating at it. He's still eating his food, whatever, and looking at the pictures. I just thought it was great. Uh, and of course, and and also actually coming along with something you had said in, uh, last week, um, it, it seems clear from what uh, Paul is saying to Strickland that yeah, this guy that he was keeping an eye on and taking photos of for the last whatever number of days, uh, Perkins. Um, yeah, he's got his thumb in some shady business here and there, like, especially like loan sharking and things of that nature. But he's also someone who clearly is also giving back to the community. And he didn't see any indication that there was anyone looking to rub the guy out or anything along those lines. Um, so, and, and you figured, and of course, we all know this can't be the end of it. And then we find out later just, uh, just what that, that, the real, story there is but we'll we'll get to that because first we're going to get to Della I keep saying I love Della and Hamilton together they're fun and they're going to a piano recital and that is where we meet yet another new character on the show and the character's name is Camilla I don't know if it's pronounced Camilla or Camilla I'm gonna say Camilla Nygaard it's played by Hope Davis um and there's a little there's some gags between Della and Hamilton about the fact of him trying to stay awake during a piano recital. And then later on, Della gets a chance to actually speak to Camilla. And we see that she's a bit more savvy than we might have given her credit for. And when we first see her talking in front of the crowd, um, she's definitely smart and clever. I'll tell you the right thing. She's a, I already like her character more than the character she, that Hope Davis plays on Your Honor, who I find very annoying. But, um, I, what again? What I like about it, I, I like seeing Della playing in. Della is a character who who de- very easily can can sh- move between different worlds. As as long as people don't know the quote unquote truth about her, of course. Um, in this very episode, the fact that she can can shift between you know the most you know the most hoity toity places possible to the most low-down, run-down, vagrant camp or Hooverville kind of area or underground boxing ring. You know, it's I, I like that she can kind of, you know, almost seamlessly move whatever, which I, I in my mind, and probably I'm wrong, I, I don't, I wouldn't normally think it would be as easy for a woman of that era as it would be for for a dude, for, for, for example. Well, and it made me think watching this episode. Um, I watched the after 
I watched the the sort of after thing, and I found it fascinating that that Hooverville that they be, built a whole set and, um, you know, something I think this show is doing a real good job with is making Della super competent, super powerful. And putting her in a lot of places, I mean, I don't know that a lot of shows would have built a whole set where the, you know, if if she just goes there with the family um, and we don't see Perry go there, if we if we see, you know, the, the underground boxing where she goes to, that I mean, it's a vehicle for her relationship with the woman she met. Um, you know, there, there are two big set pieces in this show set up for Della. Uh, and usually that would be the, that would be where the male character would go. So the, the writers and the, the director, uh, the way that they have staged this, Della really gets some prominence that, that I think we see in this episode in particular. She probably better than anyone can move between all these worlds and be successful in all of them. Right. I would. I would probably. I would probably make more less of the fact of it being her, her of her being a woman and, and doing things like that because I think at this point we we've seen a lot of shows, especially on HBO, uh, where women are the focal characters and, and stuff. I but to, to but to still to go along with what you're saying, I think it's more the interesting thing for me is and, and this is more for someone who has any knowledge or background of that character is that she was always kind of just a vaguely supporting secretarial character. You know, she, she has actually, she, uh, I can't believe I'm going to use this word. I'm just making fun of people using this word uh, a couple hours ago. She actually might have a bit more agency <laughs> in the original books than she did on the TV series because, you know, the TV series goes back to like, you know, the, the early sixties and whatever. And, you know, unless, you, unless you're Lucille Ball, you know, you're probably not, you're not getting a lot of, uh, you know, really valuable screen time on, on a TV show of any, uh, real, uh, heft, whatever. Um, and that, that, that again, we, we've talked about it and we'll continue to talk about it. One of the very interesting decisions as they move forward with this, this series, um, and I'm not talking about changes to her character. I don't care. I'm not, not going to I don't care about that. It's fine. It's great. It's just making her a more significant character overall that she, I mean, it's still Perry Mason. He's still the main character, but she's a very strong supporting character. You know, yeah, she's a very strong. And, 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 and she has, um, earned that so far. Uh, but I, 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 but I don't want to get, I don't want to get bogged down just on her because I really like her, but you know, I don't want to make her out to be like the next Ray Seahorn or something either. You know, she, she, I don't like her that much. <laughs> I'll just be, I'm just being honest, you know. So speaking, of, we were talking about Strickland a few moments ago and we, we get that little moment with Strickland at Perry's place later on. And that's where we get. <laughs> That's where we get that great story. And that's where you get the reason why you have a character like Strickland played by Shea Wiggum and how you can have fun with a character. It's, it's like he and Hamilton are the two most fun characters from t- so totally different walks of life, which is what makes them both so great. The story he tells about the, the, the diving horse and I'm going to say the word he uses because I, I, and I apologize for any who are offended by this word. I personally am not offended by it. 
but I am, but I'm just recounting how he phrased it. When he refers to it as a retarded horse, I couldn't stop laughing because I, I was like, wait, because they were able, and the, but his reasoning for why he says that, you know, not because, you know, to convince a horse to dive 40 feet into a pool of water, the horse must be, you know, what he said. No, he he referred to it that way because that's the only way he can imagine they even got the horse to get up that high to begin with. And I was like going, but why would that have anything to do with I don't understand. <laughs> it was just ridiculous. It's it's really interesting that that he and and Berger and the people he works for, you know, are almost polar opposites in that he's he's a he's as pragmatic as it gets and as you know, um, unbuttoned up as it gets and, and they're the opposite, but that they've obviously found a, a good use for him. I do like that Perry sort of picks his brain and, and unlike a lot of shows where it's like, well, I can't talk about that or, you know, we, we, we can't go there. Um, Strickland gives him a, a crumb or two yep. and, uh, and, and I, and I like that a lot that he did that and we get, Perry's mind starting to race to where it goes next. Right. Because, you know, we have the mention of the powder burn, the not, not, not being any powder burns, which sparks Perry's interest. Hey, look at that. that pun sparks powder burn. Anyway. Um, and then we just get that little moment, which is the kind of thing that a lot of times people say, don't put that in a script, but they, but, but I'm, I'm totally for it and I'm glad that they did it. Where we just cut to Perry just like for a minute there. And it's clear that Perry's got something. He just can't get out of his head. And I just love the idea. And again, it's, I'm not saying I haven't seen this before. I've probably seen it a thousand times. I don't care. I don't mind it. I love the idea of that nagging conscience, the need to do the right thing, to be the hero despite your brooding cynicism, sir. Yeah. Again, like I just said, seen it a, b- a billion times, but it works so well when it's done right. And I feel, feel like it is done right here because I think that's where he goes. I, now, does he use a does he use like a drugged squeaky toy <laughs> to deal with a guard dog? Because <laughs> it can't just be a squeaky toy, because like, then the dog kind of flop over a bit, so it must be drugged. <laughs> Did he? Uh, I don't know. Well, it's very, you strange. know, it's usually a piece of meat that someone's like put. But I like that. It, no, it's a squeaky toy. <laughs> it's it's yeah. It, it's it's something. Uh, it's something that wasn't that formidable to to use to get the dog. I just thought it was really. I just thought it was because usually it's usually like, oh someone then they bring a steak that they they've rubbed you know they've they've treated with some drug and that's how they do it. It's like no, it's a toy. Okay, it's different. I always like something just a little bit different. Anyway, he's checking out the McCutcheon car and we see that he's doing he's taking measurements. He's figuring out angles because it things just don't make sense because if there are no powder, obviously if there's no powder burns on the body, then there had to be a significant distance from when the shot was taken. And then, so he's trying to figure out the angles, uh, you know, it made sense. Cause I'm trying to figure out, okay, it's going to be about how, how tall they are, where would they be holding a gun, you know, so on and so forth. Can I say something just to admit my own failing memory? Cause we see it in a uh, next scene. We have a moment with Perry and his ex-wife and I guess their and I guess their son um, we see briefly. I guess he's. It, it's a. I guess it's a private school. From the way they they talk about the school, whatever. I gotta confess, and I feel bad because we podcast about the entire damn season, season one. 
I totally forgot that Perry had it has an ex-wife and a kid and i'm remembering the scenes like with the present with the kid in the last season now but when it happened i was like wait what oh yeah because they didn't i didn't hear them mentioned at all in the first episode so it's been like almost three years man how am i supposed to remember no it was it was a uh it, it definitely came out of nowhere and i remembered but i wondered you know if it was going to be like uh like, you know, the old sitcom thing where the second brother suddenly disappears and it's never on the show again. And, (laughs) but, uh, but it, but it was, it was good to see him because we sort of see a replay of the Hamilton burger, uh, discussion with the teacher when she's talking about idealism and success and preparedness and why, you know, all that stuff's good. And, and Perry, Perry talks it up to like in that while we pay you the money, like so they succeed, uh, you know. So so his mantra sort of is bashing into the um, the vapid with tough, cynical, idealistic questions about what they're saying, and we see that for his son too. Yeah, I, I, again, I, I keep finding it interesting that, and it, and it goes to uh, what I was what I've said about you know Perry and his. How, what his identity is and how he views himself or how he projects or whatever. And it's, it's fascinating that he's, you know, quote unquote, a lawyer now and he will eventually take the case, whatever. But everything about his actions, because it's what he used to do and it's how he's been presented, screams private eye. Every, you know, from the way he dresses, from the way he, he proceeds, the scene, a couple of the scenes that happen later on, that's pure PI kind of stuff. I, and again, I don't mind that. I just find it fascinating. And I love that about the show because it, it makes him a more active lawyer character than, than maybe the more, like the more traditional Perry Mason character for that matter. Um, so I like the idea that we're going to see him later working with Drake to do things. I think we're going to see, I, I get the feeling we're going to probably see a lot of that, um, throughout the season. At least that, at least that's my hope, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, I think they, they've leaned heavily into the war and what that did to him and to to play that out, you know, the world weary cynicism of someone who's seen and, and did the things he did. And I think there's even doesn't he discuss it with Sonny like the. Yes, he brings up. He, 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 what do we he, call it? The plans or. He, I right. Well, we're getting. Well, yeah, let's talk about it now. Um, he. <laughs> What's funny is because we talk about him being idealistic and, and, and yet cynical, whatever. But in that scene that you just that you referenced, which happens later in the episode, which is um, so we'll just cross it off the checklist now. It's how it, it's the plan is okay. How are we going to pay? How are we going to be able to to afford to mount a real significant defense for this guy? It's, that that costs money. Where do we get money? He comes up with this plan that they present to Sonny about taking over all these different locations that are about to go uh, through foreclosure and whatever. And he uses a lot of language and phrases and hark and, and directly to Sonny harkens back to things from wartime. He's so what I loved about that, because it's kind of like the way he is and we've seen him in court to a certain extent, but more so here. And it's, it's the kind of thing that Hamilton Berger would be proud of. Quite frankly, he's being totally, Totally manipulative, and there's 
there's something there's something kind of interesting about the, there has to be a certain jaded cynicism about using this war stuff in order to, to convince a guy to give you like a thousand dollar a month retainer that you're you're using it in such a you know bald faced um attempt to get money out of the guy but it's for a you know it's for the right reasons you know he's not he's not he's not jimmy mcgill <laughs> is it jimmy mcgill doing the wrong thing for the right reasons yeah like, i guess maybe there is a similarity except maybe the plane will blow up in his face the way that but maybe it will because we're going to be seeing sunny all season so who knows anyway yeah I, you know it costs money to be the king of new york oh yeah king of new york um los angeles so yeah. The, the, after we we get this little s- section here, um, where Della realizes she's going to cancel an appointment she has with a client because Perry isn't showing up because he's not making it, and that's where we realize that Perry is actually at the prison meeting with the Gallardo brothers, and that's where we incorporate the thing that he was doing with the car with the measurements, and that's where we get the information we, we get the, the discussion about that coin about that they had found the wallet in the garbage somewhere else, and they went through it and they found the coin and, and you know what the, the older brother is kind of yelling at and they could have just left it they were being greedy and I love that Perry agrees like no, I would have taken it too and, and if you think about it there would be no reason not to take it. It's just they right. found, they found the random, whatever. It make, makes perfect sense. They would know this is, no, this is how they're setting you up, dude. Um, I just like the fact that at the, at the pretty much almost virtually the same time he's doing that, that's when Della then decides, as you mentioned before, to go to the Hooverville to meet with, well, to meet with the women of the family, the mother. And even as she's, you know, saying, well, we're, well no, 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 we're not taking the case. I just, I just want to give advice, but no, maybe I shouldn't have come here. Because there's a moment, uh, I didn't make note of it, but I'm just remembering it as we're talking about it, and I thought it was like a really nice telling scene for uh, a character other than the ones we normally talk about. The the actress and the character who's the um, the wife, I love that she starts going through, you know, how do you want me to be? I can be this. I can, you know, I, you know, I can, you know, whether it's, you know, I can be the, 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 the grieving spouse or this or that. And those aren't the words she uses, but like, but she uses all these different scenarios of how to paint her. The, what, what cliche, what cliche would you like me to be that will make it work for you so you guys will represent us? What, what, what is the role you want me to play here? I will do whatever it takes to make, you know, to, to make, to make this happen. I just really like that scene. I know, I know it kind of freaks Della out to a certain extent, but I think it should freak her out. And the other thing I want to say about that is, and then we've already, since we've referenced both scenes, but I don't care. I did find it a little jarring. We see, and I've watched the episode, not, you know, so I know it's, I know the order of the scenes, whatever. We have that scene, Della at the, the Hooverville with them. The next time we see Della at all is when she's with, um, what's her name? Is it Anita? Yeah, at the boxing rat at, match. At the boxing, and she's taken to the boxing match. And yes, they mentioned that she had called her. Probably needed to get out of the house and needed to go out and you know, you know, have some after what she went. But it just felt like a weird. I don't want to, since they're not back. They're not. They're not back to back. There are other scenes in between them, so I can't say it's a juxtaposition kind of a thing. But it seemed weird. We went from that to that, <laughs> and it kind of threw me for a second. Like that's kind of a really weird shift, but. Like I said earlier, her character goes 
ends up in all these wildly different environments throughout the episode. So I guess it's kind of like par for the course, whether it be, you know, you know, a, a piano recital with all these muckety mucks to a Hooverville to an underground boxing ring to a courthouse. You know, it's, I guess it's just, she, she's actually, you know, we're, we're seeing just how active a character she is and how she can move to these worlds, as I said before. So let's not repeat myself. Yeah. And, and I think the, she goes to take the doll back. And I like that, that we see her enter this area and she's dressed in stark opposition to everyone there, but she, she's striding purposefully. She's not, you know, she's not scared. She's not cowed by it. She, she goes in and marches in. And I love that scene um, because they're surprised she's there. They, I mean, it's hard to believe she would come there. Um, and I think one of them says something like, well, you want to help or you wouldn't have really come here. Like, like, you know, and, and I think what Perry likes is the representing somebody and fighting for an underdog that truly deserves justice. I think the idea of criminal law is more exciting for Della than the boredom of civil law. And while she may be more practical than Perry, she has to admit things like this going out to the underground boxing match are more exciting than, than what she's been doing. And I think that's, what's going to lead her to be supportive and ultimately enjoy the criminal law. I, I think as far as the actual practice of law and her occupation, and I think it's referenced, if not just in the episode, then perhaps that little extra that one can view when they watch an episode on HBO max, as opposed to HBO directly. Um, as we saw in the first episode, and, as we, and honestly, at least publicly and at least professionally, it's what she has to do. She's pretty much consigned to having to follow Perry's lead. Yes, and if Perry is not up until what happens, what has was about to happen in this episode, if Perry does not want to pursue criminal law, and he and he feels civil is the safer way to go. And that's what she has to do. She's, she, she certainly is not going to be able to force him to go the other way. That, not something like that. Now, there's something that's interesting that said, and every scene has a word or phrase or at least a moment which is telling about something else in the episode and about, you know, story-wise, character-wise, et cetera, and how it applies. And in that scene, when they're at the boxing, uh, match and, you know, everything, and obviously you have, you, Obviously, you're watching something where it looks like one person should be favored over the other in, in the actual ring because of the, the size of, 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 of them, of the two men, and who's actually seeming to do better, but who are they actually rooting for, and so on. But there's something I think Anita says, and it's about the look in the eye, and she, and she really accentuates the word, it's fearlessness. And that's something that I think is important um, as a... As a as a a telling trait for someone like Della. And quite frankly, it needs to be something for Perry as well. If they're going to really pursue that, if they're going to do what they really want to do, that's something they, they need to, to try to adopt because they're with Perry, especially there's a lot of fear that, that has, you know, encroached upon him, you know, ever since his time in the war and especially after what happened with Emily Dodson and, and so on. Um, but you can't take a case like this without 
you know, at least trying to embolden yourself. So there's a reason you, I, I'm telling you, there's going to be a moment at some point in this season, there's going to be like a look in his eye and she's going to see it and she's going to think that. I don't know if she'll repeat the line or not, but I'm telling you, that's why that's, I felt like that's why that's there. I just feel like that's why that line was there. Yeah. I, and I mean, uh, the, the prize fight analogy of, I mean, the, what's more adversarial than a boxing match, right? You know? Um, so you, you've got to be, you've got to be confident. Two sides are selling a narrative to a group of people. Nobody will buy what you don't believe. If you don't believe it yourself, you can't sell it. Right. Right. Um, so you have to be fearless and unapologetic in what your story is and sell it. And I think that's the lesson. Even if it's later, we see Della say, you know, work the body and, kill the head or yep. whatever or yep. something. I think, as well. I think there'll be, I think there'll be a callback to it for sure. Right. So just to skim over the next few things, because we've kind of touched on to a certain extent, because obviously when Della shows up at the office the next day, we see this is where Perry is changing his mind. She sees, you know, the, some of the clippings that he had been working on, you know, over, overnight as well as that supermarket that we talked about before. Um, and that's where they realize that they need money for the case you know, to, you know, for the defense, and then they're going to see Sonny, which we already talked about. So let's fast forward to, I don't know if it's the very next day or not. I'm not I'm, I get very confused with time on most TV shows. I'm never like, what is it? But they're at the arraignment hearing. And Perry, he's, you know, we love the guy. He, he's he's talking like the everyman, the well-spoken everyman. And you know that that talk, especially... <laughs> Especially if you're watching anything, it's period. Never goes well with a judge. <laughs> you know, I don't care if you're Gary Cooper, Jimmy Stewart, or Perry Mason. It's it's probably not going to work well for you. So the bail and the you know whatever you call it, is denied. It was it, no, well, it wasn't bail. It wasn't denied. He, he just he wasn't phrase it better for me because you're the lawyer here. Uh, bond was denied. Like the, they were de- they were denied the ability to post bond or post bail, so it was that it was, right, it was arraignment. Like they had fifty thousand dollars or something yes. like that, which they clearly are not going to have. So, um, but that's where we had the scene on the courthouse steps, and that's and the thing that we referenced earlier about how they're they're essentially getting blindsided by this rumor of a fingerprint one of their fingerprints being on the car and then they real and with the realization that that was had to be leaked by Milligan himself. And now it's going to come out as being whatever. And there's that great line that Perry says, where he says, I just wish a Milligan was as dumb as I want him to be. And I said, yeah, I I, I said, I, you know what? I wrote it down. That's how good a line it was. That's, that's a good line. I mean, you know, in the, in the power rankings of what you want in your opponent, Smart and competent aren't the two you want to line up. You want it to be like, you know, smart and incompetent or dumb and competent or lazy and, you know, competent or lazy and incompetent is the best. I mean, if you get that, if you get lazy and incompetent, but, you know, yeah, I mean, I think the reason he says that is, is we see, like you said, Milligan's first statement he comes out swinging and Perry knows he's uh, he's up against it. And Milligan really shows his hind in at the hearing, you know, going on and on uh, saying things to continue to further poison the well against the Gallardo brothers. Right. Absolutely. 
it, it's it's right after this we see that little moment um and we referred to earlier with the uh police maybe not being so honorable where someone clearly is given access to the evidence and appears to with 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 gloved hands um slips slips a slip of paper into i guess a wallet or bill of hold of some sort um that's in the box um the figure remains fairly hazy and out of focus even as even as the person leaves the room my initial assumption when i watched it was it was um mccutcheon's father because in my mind that would have made sense because he is someone who has money and power and influence and maybe could get away with this. But the fact they're keeping it kind of hazy. And then you reminded, and, and earlier in this conversation, you pointed out, we can't really be sure who it was in that, in the beginning of that very first episode. So maybe it's just a point, a straight up unidentified person that we'll learn the identity of at some point later. And it's not the father at all. But maybe the father's just too obvious a choice. I don't know. I just think the father is going to play a significant part throughout the series. And this would make sense. We know later on, um, that that's, it looks like that slip of paper is apparently a phone number that they find there. Um, when Perry and Drake go there, but before I talk about Perry and Drake going there, we, can I just talk about how great the scene is um, back at the office? It's after we they're listening to the funeral procession on the radio. And that's when we realize how big a deal this dude dying really must be. Because they talk about thousands of people, you know, lining the streets and you're know, showing. I was like, oh, okay, this is this is a very big deal. And that's when Paul Drake shows up at their office. And again, we're getting the scene with what I always refer to as the three principles here. And I love that the whole scene, and as I keep talking about, it's about trust. And rightly or wrongly, the perception of trust being broken and what has happened, everything from uh, the promises that were broken, um, even if they weren't meant to be broken, after the the Dodson case, to what what just happened with Strickland and how it turned out that, um, you know, he, he felt like he ended up setting up you know, and you know, a, a, a person of a person of color who who was a valuable member of that community, regardless of whatever crimes he was also involved in, and that he got used for something. I, I just, I, I just, it's one of my favorite scenes in the entire episode. It's just, it's just the ping pong between all three of them, and it, it's, I, I just think it's fascinating. Yeah, and, and I, I liked in that scene a lot that Drake. Um, holds his ground and doesn't he wants he wants a job and he needs money and he's in a very bad place but he, he's gonna tell perry he's upset with him but he's not just gonna take the job he's telling him like if we're gonna do this i have to trust you um and and the, and to his defense you know Perry admits that he didn't think Strickland would do that and Strickland used him and put him in a bad position. Um, you know, I, I, I love the scene because I really, really like the chemistry uh, of these three. The more I've seen their characters, the more I look forward to seeing all three of them together and doing stuff and, right. and maybe seeing more in the office this year. Um, so I, I really loved that scene. It was so purposefully staged too. you know, like, you know, uh, uh, can you say Mexican standoff? Um, you know, it, 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 it's what it looked like, um, you know, but 
Paul maintain his demeanor. So I thought it was wonderful. But but I like, too, that in the way this story moves, you and I have talked about, uh, like they don't waste any time immediately. Him and Perry are off investigating. Right. right. Um, so it, it just moves a clip. So one thing um, as we as we move further into the episode, and, and obviously there, there's little bits here and there that I've kind of skipped over, which is fine. Um, I've mentioned, I, I know I've mentioned in conversation with you outside the podcast, I think I've mentioned on the podcast as well. Um, when you're dealing with a case like this, this to me, it's just, it's very reminiscent of a lot of detective fiction, mystery fiction, you know, pulpy or otherwise of the era, which, you know, and we hold in such incredibly high regard. There, there are Mount Rushmore style names of people like your Raymond Chandlers and your Dashiell Hammetts and, and whatever. But the one thing they have in common, if you actually were to sit and read something like, say, especially a Raymond Chandler book, um, Oh my lord, the convolutions are to the point of where, uh, okay, whatever. You're almost reading more for the dialogue than anything. And, and th- this is, this isn't just, this isn't me saying it as a dumb guy. This is something that even, you know, the most literary people have always said about those works. So there are things in here where we're starting to get, okay, here's where there's, there's these details about the plotting where it's, you know, your eyes might start to glaze just a little bit you know you we're still following it we get it to a certain degree but it's just going okay we're just widening all these little threads that are all gonna kind of knit together like for example let me see if i can get these in order like when they were speaking with sunny earlier in the episode and correct me if i'm wrong and if i get anything wrong please correct me um but they were talking about um dealing with suppliers and Perry and you know their their sense initially is thinking oh they have to vet them for and it's like no 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 and Sonny basically like no he knows that they're all he basically knows they're all crooks they're right. all whatever that, that's like you know that that's not what he needs them for whatever right so and I know and you plant that as a seed that connects to we then we see this other guy who obviously um who has served a subpoena. And he's, he looks like he must be one of those suppliers. He's, there's all these crates of produce around him that say, you know, Goldstein. So we know he's, so we know this guy is Goldstein, whatever. Then we're going to eventually get to something later on where we see the produce that, you know, the, the, the still existing barge that was McCutcheon's and now somehow as Holcomb's is taken over or whatever. Um, the only produce they are actually getting is, Goldstein's, which connects to that guy, which connects to what Sonny had said earlier, and then we have that 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 straight out of casino scene, you know, without an eyeball, I guess, where I believe it's Goldstein. Yeah, yeah, it is because we hear it on the phone. Uh, Goldstein's head is put in a vice and you know crushed. I thought that was Holcomb who did it. And I thought, because I thought we could sort of see his face in a couple shots, but it wasn't super clear to me, or maybe my eyesight isn't what it used to be. I think that's who that was, but I could, again, I could be wrong, because I, I, I just, I, I might have just missed, maybe my eyes deceived me. I'll ask you if you thought it was Holcomb or not. I that's what it looked like. I, I wasn't sure. Um, I wasn't sure it was Holcomb. I, I, I have a feeling there's a, there's a goon. That that that's doing this stuff. That 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 you know what? I'm going to go along with that 
for one reason. Well, more than one reason. I don't want to say one reason. Because when that character that we've, we, we hadn't met before gets that phone call later on, a character named Crippen, we know his name is Crippen, looks like a well-to-do, rather erudite fellow, whatever. And he gets a phone call, and I believe, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, he gets a phone call telling him that, um, that gold, that gold scene has been taken care of, whatever. It's n- now, I watch everything with the captions on. If that was Holcomb, they would identify it as Holcomb. I don't think they identify, I think it's unidentified caller or man, which therefore means it's probably not Holcomb because they would identify it as Holcomb on the phone. At least that's, that, that, that's my, that's how, how I surmise it. And I think, I don't know that Holcomb would, would have contact with anyone like Cribben. Yeah, Cribben. That, that, that's another good like, reason. Right, right. You know, right. Uh, he was more street level, but, We'll see. I, I, I will say. I think in both both the uh, the scene uh, at the that you're talking about and the earlier scene we talked about when you first came on. I mean, they don't throw a lot of light on the face to make it to erase any doubt of who it is. Right. Um, so, so they do keep it. They do keep it. Um, I guess vague enough that that unless you really want to pause and go back and maybe change your settings that you could be sure and, and verify the identity. Right. I should also say that while, you know, er, earlier while, um, and speaking of, you know, plot convolutions and whatever, while Perry and, um, Drake were going through the evidence, um, Della had her own assignment and she was going through like, you know, the, uh, the L.A. County records. Oh, by the way, I don't know if anyone else would think this, but I, my first thought was like, "Oh, like in Chinatown," uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know the, the movie that you know that the, wants you to hold it. It's like you, know, you all want to be this, don't you? Because that's what you know. J.J. Giddies goes to do, and he looks through you know the records that land, land deals, water, whatever. That's what she's doing. But she's seeing stuff relating to um, the the gambling barge, the Morocco that um the McCutcheons had owned whatever and that's where she sees um the all the the, the the shenanigans that have been going on for quite some time um and w- regarding not paying bills and essentially like reselling the, the the barge over and over to different you know shell or holding companies which which in a sense means you're selling it to yourself right and yet you're stiffing everybody on the bills in the meantime, which is, and the interesting thing is that, and this is a guy who's supposed to be, you know, a millionaire, and yet he's doing that. But I think we've all heard of millionaires who stiff people on bill, you know, contractors on bills. You know, <laughs> we may have, we may have. <laughs> so, so at a certain point, Perry and Drake end up on the Morocco. You know, obviously, they have to go in through separate. <laughs> Separate ways, separate doors. It's the 1930s and so on. Next question. Perry's in the gambling room and he gets approached by the girl, you know, asking for a drink. Was that, I thought that was the girl that we see McCutcheon with in the very first episode. Was that not her? That was my assumption, yes. And and that's how I took it to be as well. And, and I will I will point out when we were talking about the evidence, there was, there was an interesting twist that, that, I don't know if oh the belt the, the second belt that they both commented on like huh a, a second belt 
um, in addition to the phone number. Now, you know, the what we saw added wasn't a belt. It was definitely a phone number and maybe something else. Who knows? But but the second belt being commented on, I hope that gets into their investigation of Brooks McCutcheon's life. And that's why daddy gets mad and starts screaming and hollering. That makes sense. I just, Okay, I was pretty sure that was her. There was that little part of me that went, really? You show up at the barge and the, the first random woman you, you happen to talk to just happens to be the woman that we saw him sleeping with, you know, like a day before he's murdered. But I was like, no, I'm fine with that. I'm okay with that. I'm okay. Because it doesn't look like there's that many that many women walking around, you know, um, serving uh, customers. But it's got to be more than one. <laughs> anyway. Um, and that's an, also we get that scene in, in the uh, in the kitchen. That's how we when we see the Goldstein produce and, and so on and so forth. We also get a, so we get some action. Get a little chase scene. You know, Perry peeking in on the engine room. There's Holcomb. You know, there. It, it's kind of like they set it up, and uh, you know, Holcomb's kind of like his his lower level arch nemesis. You know, but what what I'll say about that, that's very reminiscent, again, of any number of P.I. things where there is that cop that they always have the issue with, whatever. Sometimes it could be the main cop. Sometimes it could be, you know, the right hand man goon cop. You know, I just mentioned Chinatown a, f- a few moments ago. It wouldn't be the main cop because they used to actually work together, but it was the. <laughs> It was the cop that worked, the other guy who they were, he was always having conflict with. So, and, 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 and go watch an old Mum, Humphrey Bogart movie from the forties and you'll see it happen time and time again. So I think Holcomb's kind of been set up that way here as well. Um, and I think actually, I think that's why they make Holcomb a bigger deal by having him be kind of like in charge of the casino. So he's not just simply. You know, at least it looked to me like he's in charge. So that's how they're acting in this episode, at least. Um, so he's not just, you know, the, the, the random corrupt detective. Right. Who, you know, there's a, there's a bit more to him. He's, he's actually getting himself more of a position of power and more of a reason to be more of a villainous character as a result of that, in fact. Well, it's, he's, he's transitioned from being a corrupt cop to being a, a figure in the underworld, like a real person that owns property, uh, has contacts. And as we, as we saw, you know, I think last week he talks to Brooks about being in on this investment opportunity. Right. So, I mean, you know, he, he's, he's not just that he's, he's sort of diversified his portfolio of evil. Absolutely. And probably the one last detail before the, the close of the episode, because I realized we are actually at the close of the episode is when that fellow Crippen gets that phone call. Um, again, a little bit of, Plotting. After he gets a call and he knows that Gold and he is a Goldstein is dead, who's the fellow who got a subpoena earlier in the episode. We see him throwing a subpoena in a fire himself, but that subpoena was actually ser- had been served to Brooks McCutcheon. Dun dun dun. <laughs> cue the wrong music. I mean, cue the music. <laughs> <laughs> cue the wrong music. I like that. Couldn't resist. Oh, although, can I just point out? Um, sense of humor for a show that I didn't think was going to have as much of a sense of humor. The fact that the op- at least for the first uh, minute or so of the f- closing credits, we get these lovely historical vintage photos 
of um, of, a, of of a, of of that diving horse that Strickland had been descri- had described. By the way, having worked um, as and a few of our listeners know this, um, having worked in the stock photo business for over a quarter of a century, at one point, um, I do recall photos of this absolutely of horse diving back in the 30s and, and that era kind of thing. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if one or two of the photos that I saw way back when were repurposed for this. I know they did some kind of effects to them, but they, they, they still were taking original photos to begin with, I believe. I don't think those were, were shot for this for this episode. I think they were taking actual vintage photos for it. No, I, I like that. That was a departure for the end of an episode, and, and I thought it was an interesting effect. Um uh, there was one final uh, plot point that that I just wanted I just wanted to touch on briefly, and I, I do I do want to say that I, that I what Della did in that property room they gave her lots of time to do it, and they showed the work she put into it to sort of show that that side was equal to what Paul and, and uh, Perry were doing Mm -hmm. that, that it wasn't like they showed them looking at cool stuff and they just showed her looking at a book. Like they showed the work it takes to trace those property things. And it's a, it's a huge pain in the butt. Like a humongous pain in the butt. That's look, that's to give her credit. That's why I was referencing Chinatown in the first place. I mean, that's, because that's a guy that does both things. We, he seemed going through those books and, you know, whatever. What I kind of wish she could have done, but she couldn't do because she's in a public thing, so she just was writing things down. What would have made my day is if she coughed and ripped a page out instead. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I wanted. Maybe someone's like, Albacore? Anyway. Yeah, exactly. You mentioned, and uh, you had mentioned watching and um, the little behind the scenes thing that they do at the end of every episode on HBO max. And they do this for other, by the way, if anyone chooses to watch HBO instead of HBO max, um, the one advantage to watching HBO max is they do that with a lot of their series. They do it with the last of us. They did it with house of the dragon. They do it with Perry Mason. I, I'm, I know they, Oh, I know they do with succession. Um, Ooh, yay. Do my job for me guys. Anyway, <laughs> So there was a couple things mentioned in that that I think were are worth mentioning now. One of them, because it harkens back to something we were speculating about in the previous podcast that the showrunner talks about, and he talks about, um, he makes a reference to the number of women or the percentage of women who are actually working in the law profession as lawyers in 19, this is, takes place in 1933, I think they say, Um Three percent of the attorneys at that point in the entire country were women. It was funny because he he first phrases it oddly, but I realized what he meant because he says three percent of women were attorneys. Like, no, 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 you don't mean three percent of women. <laughs> you mean three percent of attorneys were women, not three percent of women were attorneys. Right. That don't make no sense. Um, they also, again, for, for anyone who want, one of the things I noticed when I watched the the a behind the scenes thing for Perry. I think I watched this before the first episode, actually. It was a, a, a lengthier thing. And one of the neat things they've done with this series is they have not they have more than one um historical consultants on staff to make so really making sure they get things right. Um so I appreciate that. But by doing that you also get to find out about how some of these characters are in any way loosely, at least loosely based on actual people. Even if there wasn't an actual case like this, which they've made, they've made it very clear a few times. This isn't based on any actual case, 
but there are characters that are based on certain characters to a certain extent. Like Anita is actually based on a screenwriter uh, at that time who was, you know, actually pretty successful, but very much led a life. And I can guess what that means similar to, to Anita. And her name was Anita also. Her, her, but I love the fact that her name was Anita Luce, L-O-O-S. And I was like, oh, and she's loosely based on her. So anyway. <laughs> and then they also mentioned that McCutcheon is kind of, is again, loosely based on, on an oil tycoon at the time, uh, Ned Doheny, who also had a father, Ed Doheny, who was, you know, the patriarch of the family, whatever. There are certain similarities, but... You know, obviously he wasn't murdered, but what, but that, but that at least certain traits are, are their position in, in society and how they were seen. Um, the, the, those are the things that they're kind of incorporating into these characters. So I kind of like little things like that, especially, you know, cause it just, it, 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 it gives a bit more of a, um, this gives a bit more interesting depth to the characters to know that oh they're 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 getting a little bit of this from history you know you know kind of a, kind of like Law and Order no I'm just kidding so. <laughs> no it, it gives you a sense of of depth of both the research the writing and on that thing as I referenced earlier even Matthew Reese talks about how immersive the sets are that when he walks onto set, like you don't have to get into your character. You're there like based on all the wonderful production design, building a whole Hooverville, the way they dress up the courthouse. And uh, so it's the production value on this show has been outstanding. And this episode pushed us forward a lot. Um, So why don't we end it speculating what we think will happen next episode? Um, <laughs> um, well, it's only going to be the third episode. So by, by just by virtue of being the third episode, things are certainly not going to get better for, for the lads in, in prison. So they'll, they'll, they'll likely get worse. I, I, I imagine we're, I imagine we're going to get some more twists and turns that, that involve, um, these, these odd convoluted shenanigans. And I somehow think, um, the sunny stuff is going to start to play a bigger part as we move forward because it can't be that simple. You, you, you know, you don't get Sean Aston to play this part. And I love that he's playing, as we said before, he's playing someone so, so opposite of what we normally see him play. Yes. And he's having so much fun doing it. It's great. Yeah. Whatever. But you know, you're going to be using it for some, for more than just that. I'm just, I'm very curious to see when those strands start connecting. It might be a little too soon for that, I admit. Um, so I'm not, I'm, I, I'm I'm not going to claim to be great at trying to speculate where they're going to go at this point. For me, it feels a little too early for me to really try to um, give you any real great answer to that one. So that's okay. I have a, I, I'll I'll tell my theory, and I will say, last week I, I was suspicious of Strickland and and what he was having yep. Paul do, and sure enough, they go and indict the guy this week. Not that that's the greatest prediction in the world, but I, I wonder with all these subpoenas if Sonny won't be subpoenaed, um, or, or maybe he'll be looked at as a witness, and maybe at some point, um. Perry and Della can use him to help their clients that maybe he knows something about the Goldstein produce operation that, that helps instead of hurts. 
because they've set him up as such an obvious heel, it would be a more nuanced, better turn for him to be able to them to get something good out of him in addition to their retainer money. Right. I think that's spot on. I mean, the, the, he, the whole supplier slash gold seems like whatever that, that that's got to be the through line for him. And when, cause we don't know what all these connections are with what's going on here. I, I like that. Okay. We're, we're being given these clues and information, but we don't know. It's, it's like having jigsaw puzzle pieces that don't connect to anything. So we're just, but we're just going to put them down. This might be a corner, but I don't have anything to connect to it. This is an whatever. And I, I just like the idea of, when you watch a sh- something like this, that over the course of each episode, oh, these two connect. Here we go. This connects. Yeah. And sometimes, like, the random connection of him talking about suppliers to Goldstein, who obviously is a supplier, and this subpoena, whatever. Okay, there's a connection. There's got to be something there. But maybe we'll get a few more pieces in, in the next episode or two that'll make that more uh, make more sense. And, yeah, I do think he will play a part in some – either knowingly or not, I think you're right about that. Yeah, so. All right. So, uh, well, next week we will be, of course, discussing Chapter 11 of Perry Mason. Um, I also believe we will try to do a little bit of pre-gaming for the upcoming final season premiere of Succession, which will be hitting HBO and, you know, HBO Max on Sunday, March 26th. And from that week on, we will be covering both Perry Mason and Succession on the same podcast. Um, most likely we'll be leading up the podcast with succession and then flipping over to Perry Mason. I think my belief is regardless of what IMDB says, cause I think they're wrong. I believe succession will be airing as always on Sunday nights. Perry Mason will stick to Monday nights. So it's the order we'll view them in. So it's the order we're going to talk about. Them <laughs> and as I, and I already forewarned Brian about this, but I'll let you all know this too. I would say there is a very, very, good yet stupid chance that come mid to late April when yet another series comes back to HBO to finish its final run of episodes. It's a show that both me and Brian, well, actually I, I, and I believe everyone connected to the STVD podcast and as well as our listeners, um, really love. And it'll be, it'll finally we'll have a chance to talk about it, you know, more than just on a best of the year kind of podcast. We're talking about Bill Hader's Barry. We, we love this show. Even if it, even if it's only a 10 minute segment, because, you know, it's a short show. Um, and we're talking about two big hour long shows, but we, we, we gotta get that in there. So instead of a two hour podcast, it might be two hours and 10 minutes. I apologize, but I don't care. We're going to do it anyway. <laughs> and, uh, big, uh, big, fun looking forward to what will be the holy crap episode of this season um barry has sort of established a pretty good gag of having one episode a season that is just insane right so um it'll be it'll be interesting to see what episode that is but lots of good stuff coming down the pop owen scott don't forget our man mr odenkirk has a new show that we'll be probably checking out next week too that's right. Lucky Hank makes its premiere on AMC on Sunday. I guess that's March 19th. And the creator is actually one of the producers behind multiple series like Bloodline, The Killing, um, Damages, uh, Silicon Valley, even though I haven't seen that, but I, I always heard it was good. Um, so it, it definitely already has, has a pedigree on top of the Odenkirk factor. So we're definitely looking forward to that one. 
I don't know if we can talk about that one as well. That might be overkill for a podcast, but we'll, we'll probably mention it a little bit. <laughs> How can we not? <laughs> well, we'll for sure check it out, and if it deserves something else, we'll we'll talk about it. Yeah, <laughs> maybe we just record separate podcasts in the same night. We just we just cut it that way. You know, <laughs> could do that. Anyway. If you enjoyed this podcast, God, I hope you did. Guess what? You'll enjoy hanging out on our Facebook page as well. It's the Serious TV Drama Podcast page. Like the page to join the conversation about shows like Perry Mason, like anything we just mentioned, or anything else you want to talk about that's TV or pop culture related. Um, you can find us, you know what, you already did find us, but you can find us on pretty much any podcast platform out there. Um, our home web, what's the word? Not home page. This is why I don't, this is why I should write down the endings for these damn things. Um, hosting page. That's the thing. The host page, whatever. It's stvdpodcast.podbean.com. And you can find all 371. I think this is this thing. This episode will be three seventy one of our podcast there, and as I always say, uh, maybe it's like twenty five good ones. Um, you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle there is at um, oh my god, what is it? Oh yeah, at STVD podcast. That's STVD as in serious TV drama. I did it in the wrong order this week because you can also follow us on Instagram. Everyone's on a bloom, but I remember to put a picture there. <laughs> Our handle there is serious TV dramas. We got like seventy eight followers. Who cares anyway? Speaking of following something, you know what? You can also check out my other podcast. It's Scott Forgot the 80s. All you got to remember, Scott is spelled with one T. You can find us pretty much everywhere I just told you. You can find the Serious TV Drama Podcast. Um, we just I just had a delay. The podcast we were supposed to record this week, which was supposed to be on Teen Wolf, that has now been delayed till the summer. Don't ask, but we are going to, I, I have gotten someone impromptu to get one done quicker than normal. And the next one will be actually Red Dawn, which we'll be recording next week. Actually, the night before I record the Perry Mason and, uh, the preamble for succession one with, with Brian here. Ooh, just want to get that all out there. So yeah, Scott forgot the eighties. Check it out. It's a really good podcast. I swear to God. And they're always like an hour or less. I swear to God. Anyway. <laughs> so, Brian, thank you so much once again for, for your patience and also joining me um, on our little Perry talk here. Well, so far, two episodes down, I guess six to go. So far, so good. Yeah, it's I like it. Just, just change that music. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, and for everyone out there, good night, everybody. Good night. Mm-hmm.